Hello again. You all set? I'm all set. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. This is a podcast all about uh, the details of the lives and careers and journeys and everything else of actors and what it's really like trying to be an actor and everything. And uh, my guest today is Thomas Daniels. He's uh, been an actor in New York for a few years. He's also a uh, co-founder and co-artistic director of a theater company that's uh, dedicated to producing new work, which is uh, a great thing that, of course, uh, a lot of people are trying to do these days. I actually did that uh, myself years ago, which was great. So I'm very excited to hear about that as well. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So the way I always like to start these is to ask what your day-to-day life is like right now. If you're working on any particular projects or if you have a day job or what, you know, what's uh, taking up your time at the moment. Sure. Um, I mean, it's sort of inherent in your question that it it changes really week to week. Yeah. Um, but as of right now, uh, what I am spending most of my time doing is um, preparing for uh, a couple of upcoming projects that I have, um, uh, is working on uh, producing with the theater company that I founded, Tantrum East, um, with my partner, Lisa, who, uh, which you mentioned at the top. Um, I, uh, work as much as I can, uh, as a cater waiter at the moment to pay the bills. And, uh, I'm actually, uh, newly training for the New York City Marathon in November. Um, so that's pretty much what, uh, what takes up the bulk of my, my day to day for the past three or four weeks or so. Well, that sounds like well more than enough. And that's amazing. <laughs> the, uh, about the marathon, good for you. That that takes a lot of time and discipline uh, on top of uh, also trying to do your acting and your theater company. So that's that's very impressive. But good for you for taking on that uh, that additional challenge. What what motivated that decision to do the marathon? Um, well, it, it's uh, it's sort of just a stroke of luck in a couple of ways. The first is that. Um, for the New York City Marathon, you can't just, like, do it. You have to either raise a bunch of money uh, or win the lottery to get in or right. qualify, which I was never going to do. Right. Um, and I happened to win the lottery my second year applying, um, which which was very lucky. The other stroke of luck that really just sort of got me into running in the first place uh, was that uh, in my second year in New York, uh, I moved to a new apartment. And it was right across the street from a track. And it sort of just, it it made it very hard to excuse any day that I didn't, you know, go work out. Um, (laughs) You know, like, if I lived somewhere else, I could be like, oh, you know, the gym is like a 20-minute walk. Like, I don't want to, the barriers to entry are too high. I have to, like, pay for gym membership. I don't know what I'm doing with the weights. Um, but I would literally walk home and see the track across the street from my door. And if I had 30 minutes and I didn't go for a run, it was sort of like, you had no excuse. It was right there. <laughs> yeah. So but before that, you hadn't been a runner? 
Not not much. I mean, I'd run a little bit in in like middle school, um, and I, I I have I had been a, a big biker, um, which I've done a little bit of in New York, but it was mostly before I got to New York that that I was biking a lot. Um, and I, I was, I just wasn't really a runner. And then I moved across the street from a track and it, it was so easy to be like, you know what? I got half an hour. I'll go do a couple laps around the track. Um, and you know, like anything else, I, I would do it for a couple of weeks and then I would forget about it for a couple of weeks. And every now and then I would, uh, sign up for a 5k or a 10k and go run that. And that was always lots of fun. Um, but you know, always sort of in the back of my head, I was like, it'd be really cool to run a marathon. Uh, it seems like a thing that is worth doing and spending some time on if, if for no other reason than just to say that you've done it. Um, and so I remember, you know, two years ago, I, I entered the lottery and I didn't win. And then I entered the lottery again this year. Uh, and then I, I saw a charge on my credit card. <laughs> but I was like, what? Hold on, what is that? Uh, and then I got an email that said I had uh, won the lottery to enter the marathon. So there you go. So you you <laughs> you won, which also meant they had to charge money. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, as no, they say. Um, but that is uh, that is a very funny way to have found out. But that's uh, <laughs> that's great, though. That's really cool, and you're absolutely right about the convenience factor. And um, that's also impressive to have a track right across from you in, in New York City. What what neighborhood was this in? Um, it's in Astoria. Oh, okay. Uh, and the, the uh, Astoria Park track. Oh, perfect. Which, I, ironically, now that I'm training for the marathon, uh, is under renovation for the foreseeable future. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that, I, can't, that is, I can't even... That is ironic. I can't even train on the track at the moment. Um but I, I'll, I'll, I'll usually run around the park. That's usually how I, um, how I track how many miles right. I've done. Right. So close enough. But that really is quite a funny series of events. Wow. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's great. That's really great. Good for you. Yeah, I've known a few people over the years who have done it, and they've always been very uh, fulfilled by it. And it's, uh, it's certainly very impressive. So um, we might as well start then, since you alluded to it, with this uh, theater company that you have. I know you're you're very proud of it, uh, as you should be. Uh, so tell us about it and how you guys started and, and what you guys are doing. Sure, I'll uh, I'll try to to give the most condensed version possible. Um, All right, we got time. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, so we are we are dedicated to. Uh, bringing new work and new stories uh, to New York. Um, and we're, we're really, you know, both me and Lisa Bull, uh, we're the co-founders, and our backgrounds are both primarily in theater. Um, but, you know, we say all the time that if we come across a story that we love and we think is important uh, to be told uh, right now and right here, uh, and it, the best form that it would take is a puppet show, you know, we would, we would be all about that. Um, now, as far as what we've actually been able to accomplish, uh, so far it's, it's been primarily readings, uh, just because producing in this city is so expensive. Um, and we have done okay fundraising, but not 
we haven't uh, done enough fundraising to actually do a full production yet. Um, although we've been very proud of all of the readings that we've done. Um, I believe that by the time this goes, uh, this podcast goes live, uh, our next one will be uh, a reading of a play called The Brothers Chapel by Tyler Whitten. Um, and that will be going up uh, either at the very end of May or the very beginning of June, hopefully. Um, details uh, should be forthcoming. Um, and yeah, it was primarily founded because uh, where we went to graduate school at Ohio University, um, we we were in school alongside all these really fantastic playwrights. And we were in the enviable position of getting to work with them very regularly. They had a class called Madness where every week they would write a, ten min- a new 10-minute script and have to put it up on a seat in front of a, a live audience. Uh, so it wasn't uncommon to just be sitting in the lobby working on something and a playwright would come frantically running into, uh, into the theater building and say, hey, are you free for Madness tonight? And you're like, yeah, sure. And they're like, great, we're going to rehearse for 30 minutes. In two hours, uh, I'll have new pages for you, and then it's going up at eleven. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was it was great for us as actors because it was this fantastic laboratory of a working with new scripts and b a place where like you literally couldn't do anything wrong because there was no time to have done nothing to to have done anything wrong. You just, as long as you show up and you said the words on the script and like took some chances. Um, you, you did your job. Um, and on top of all that, they had a playwrights festival at the end of the year, which all of them worked on full-length plays throughout the course of the year, which they would periodically ask us to come in and do readings of in front of the class, uh, in front of the playwriting class. So we just had all of these opportunities to work with these fantastic playwrights. Uh, it's a really strong program. Uh, and, you know, then you graduate and you get out into the quote-unquote real world. and you know, they have just uh, just as hard of a time getting their work seen as you do. Um, so we were we felt very passionate about reaching out to these playwrights that we knew and saying, "What are you working on? What are you proud of?" Um, we would love to to put it up, get some get some kick-ass actors in there to to read your words and put it up in front of people and see how it plays. Um, and yeah, we've been doing it sort of unofficially since 2017. Our, I guess, official, uh, official launch was at the end of 2018. And then we have, um, we have eight, uh, eight projects planned for 2019, one of which we've already completed and one of which, which, uh, I believe will, uh, have already been completed by the time this goes to air. Um, but, yeah, that's that's pretty much what it is. That's that's sort of the history. It's really phenomenal. You know, I, I've been a part of things like this in different ways over the years, and it's, it's always very exciting. And uh, yeah, that sounds like a great thing um, that your school did, and that you guys are continuing. It is fantastic. And of course, you know, it's it's sadly not surprising that you had a tough time, you know, going further because. It's always extremely challenging. Extremely costly. In fact, um, I'm oh, I've always been so impressed that theater companies are actually able to do things, and it's even more challenging these days because there's so many less 
theaters uh, in the city that rent out, and the costs are much higher, so it's it's yeah. quite challenging. But uh, I'm sure you guys will do it. But that's great that that you're doing what you're doing. That's really cool. Um, how yeah, thank do you. Um, how do you structure these readings? Are they staged readings with the actors actually kind of moving around, or is it just an auditory reading? Um, they're they're primarily uh, just sort of. I, I wouldn't call them seated readings because we tend to, you know, have a music stand and have the actors come up mm-hmm. to the music stand and um, and speak out to the audience. Um, so I, I would maybe call them very lightly staged, but you know, we don't we don't try to mess around with any significant blocking or um, props or uh, scenery or costumes or anything like that. Um, so that's something that we would certainly love to do in the future, uh, but you know, is just once again. Uh, a factor of time and money. <laughs> Absolutely. And do you charge admission for these readings, or are they free? Um, we have we have two different uh, formats at the moment, um, and these names will make sense in a second. But the first one is called Bob Snacks, and it is uh, short pieces. And they can be short standalone pieces or they can be excerpts of larger works in progress. And we'll showcase like five, six, or seven of those at night. Um, and those are those we, we don't charge for and they're great for sort of like looking at the, the universe of writers with which we can sometimes work um, and to get completely different things from, uh, from piece to piece. Um, and if we don't charge for those, the, the other one that we're doing at the moment is called Bot Tales. And that one is more of a focused look at one or two writers and, uh, complete drafts of, uh, of full length or longer, uh, longer standalone pieces. And those at the moment we're, uh, charging $5 a piece for it. Um, and I, I said the names would make sense. Uh, I'm, I'll try to give the short version of this one too. Um, <laughs> so we went to Ohio University. And the mascot is the bobcat. Um, and sometime during our schooling, we discovered, uh, as, a, as an MFA acting class, that um, the, a group of bobcats is called a tantrum of bobcats. Hmm. So we started calling ourselves the tantrum. Um, and that sort of took hold and became a feature within uh, the, the school of theater there to the point where that when Ohio University started a theater company uh, through which to bring in professionals and then have students train alongside professionals uh, in, a, in, a, in a professional setting, uh, they called it the Tantrum Theater. Now, fast forward to when Lisa and I now live in New York and, you know, we, uh, we love that Ohio University is doing that in Ohio, but we also wanted something a little closer to home and something that we maybe had a little bit more artistic control over. And that's when we started uh, the company, which we called Tantrum East. So we are the Tantrum on the East Coast. And because everything is so sort of rooted in that sort of uh, Bobcat Tantrum mentality, we call the one Bob Snacks and the other one Bob Tails. I love it, and uh, again, you're really getting me excited because uh, 
you know, this stuff really is always exciting, and, and I would love to uh, come to these things. I'll definitely want to get the info from that from you, and uh, we'll also, of course, post the links to the information about it in the episode notes here on the podcast. Um, that would be fantastic. Of course. And um, uh, and I, I didn't know that, that term, tantrum, for that. It's funny, all these different names for groups of different animals. I thought I knew them all, but that's a new one. So that's, that's, that's very cool. I did not know that. That's excellent. Yeah. So, um, no, I really love it. I really do. I think it's, you know, it's, like I said, it's always exciting. Um, so very cool. Um, so you also mentioned uh, being a catering waiter, which is a, a somewhat common uh, survival job for actors. It's funny, it's, I, I was a regular waiter at restaurants for a long time, and I always heard about catering and knew one or two people at times who did it. I never quite figured out how to get into that myself. Um, mm-hmm. How do you find it to be, and you know, how, how, you know, how often can you work at it if you want to? Is there a lot of work in it available, and, and how, does it, uh, how does it work for you? Is it good? Sure. Um... Uh, it's, so I'll try to, I'll try to tackle those one at a time. Um, uh, getting enough work, uh, it, for me hasn't been too much of a problem. Um, mostly because I, there was a point in my life where I decided, um, that I valued the flexibility that, that cater waitering would give me over working in a restaurant as a waiter or as a bar back or as a bartender, um, all of which I've done. Um, but I decided, okay, I'm going to make myself fully available for these catering companies. Um, and then I, I did that and I, I pretty much don't turn down a shift if I'm free. Um, which can sometimes get me in trouble because I'll look at my calendar and realize that I've signed up for, uh, you know, <laughs> 35 hours worth of shifts over the course of three days. Um, (laughs) but finding the, you know, finding enough shifts uh, to pay the bills hasn't been too much of an issue. Uh, the, the place where that becomes not true is when I'm working in New York, um, which isn't too infrequent. Um, and my experience has been that mostly if, if I'm doing a play in New York city, I'm not getting paid spectacularly for it. Um, and if, so that if, means if at all, to, if at all, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, so at that point I'm having to juggle, you know, a full rehearsal performance schedule along with catering. Um, most of the catering work tends to happen on the weekends and evenings, which is when, uh, rehearsals and performance generally take place. Um, and then the other the other thing I would say about that is that I'm actually I work with three different catering companies and um, two of them if I just relied on them uh, I I would not be able to pay my bills there's just not enough work they also happen to be the ones that pay me the best which is unfortunate um, <laughs> but the one that has the most work um, ha- uh, you know you can you can you can pay your bills uh, if you're sufficiently available. Um, let's see, what did I miss? 
What did I miss there? No, you pretty much got it. And you're talking about, you know, themes that are always coming up on this podcast. It's, it's one of the, one of the purposes of it is to talk about how actors manage to balance survival jobs and, and deal with money and everything. It's very hard. Um, yeah. but, uh, the catering thing is a good angle and, um, you know, and so you mentioned how, you know, it's tough for you when you're working on a play to not have the time to do the catering hours and so forth. Um, so in general, and again, it's one of the topics that come up a lot on the show. You know, have you found, especially in New York, of course, very costly even just to live, you know, mm-hmm. have, have, are you, have you been good as far as, or, I mean, good, but, you know, what have you learned as far as how to manage your money? Are you a good saver? You know, is it is it always a struggle financially? How, how has that been for you? Sure. Um, I have found that it uh, it's certainly difficult. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've become... Uh, I've become frugal, possibly to the point of being cheap. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I pretty much don't spend money on anything. The one place where that is not true and that I have very little self-control is on um, eating out. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets it gets very easy to, uh, you know, you'll be working a 12-hour shift catering and you'll, like, wake up in the morning and you'll go to the shift and you'll be like, I'm so sick of the catering food. I don't want to eat the catering food anymore, sure. so I'm going to... You know, I'm going to stop before my shift and I'm going to grab something to eat. And then all of a sudden you've done that five or six days in a row. And then all of a sudden you've spent far more money on food than you've meant to. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, um, I mean, uh, I, I live with my girlfriend and we uh, have an apartment that uh, we are very happy in and is, you know, not too much more expensive than the going rate for one bedrooms in New York. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, every now and then I will splurge on something fun, like going to a baseball game or, um, you know, going out and seeing a show. Um, yeah, I mean, you got, of course, you got to have a life occasionally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, especially like, uh, you know, going out, grabbing some drinks with friends. Um, yeah. but, but beyond that, um, you know, you just kind of make it work. I, I I used to say, people would ask me, you know, how's living in New York? I used to say, you know, every month the, the bills somehow seem to get paid, and I don't really <laughs> fully understand how it happens, but it does. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, you just you just kind of do what you got to do, and yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, no, it sounds good. So um, if there are actors out there who might think, oh, I'd like to try getting some catering work as a survival job, how would you recommend they, they start trying to get their foot in the door for that? Um, I would I would uh, definitely recommend uh, looking and uh, submitting applications in January, February, and March, mm-hmm. um, or August, September, October, because okay. those tend to be those tend to be the slow months in terms of events and in terms of how much work there is. Which means that the offices have more time to reach out and 
uh, and uh, do hiring. Right. Um, I mean, uh, am I allowed to name drop the companies that I work for? If you want to, of course. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, the three that I work for are Great Performances, uh, Cleaver, and Canard. Um, and um, I mean, I would always say it's always better to have somebody who already works there that you that you can name drop and say, hey, I know this person because they're far more likely to look at that and be like, oh, okay, like, we know that person, we know that they work hard, we like them. So if, they're being, if you're being recommended by this person, um, then you're more likely to get an interview. Um, so, I, I mean, in, in the miracle of the 21st century, I'd really just say if you're interested in getting into the cater waiter game, uh, throw it up on Facebook, say, uh, hey, is there anyone out there who uh, is already working as a cater waiter? What companies are you working for? Um, and would you, you know, would you mind recommending me um, for employment? And then I would also say, uh, and you know, this is something that you have to negotiate among uh, your personal relationships, but I try to be super upfront with people who come to me asking if my companies are hiring about what exactly they pay me um, and my expectations regarding raises and such um, so that they're empowered when they go in because, you know, I've definitely been in those interviews where they're like, so what do you expect to get paid? And I haven't been prepared to answer that question. And then I've lowballed myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if you, if you know that this company tends to start people out at, you know, say $23 an hour, then you can go in and be like, well, I expect 23 an hour to start. Absolutely. And then, Yeah. Very cool. That's great advice. So, and we'll post the names of those companies in the show notes as well for people. So you said sure. the beginning of the year and the summer are the slow times, but they'll be staffing up in preparation for the for the busy months. Yeah, and I I I, I wouldn't say summer exactly. I'd say late summer, early fall. Oh, sorry, late uh, because, summer, early fall. Yeah, June and July, lots of weddings and stuff. Yeah. Um, and you, um, you've sort of alluded to this as far as, you know, once you get in and if you're recommending someone or whatever and, and being someone they end up liking. Um, so first of all, and again, this always comes up related to different kinds of flexible day jobs on the podcast, you know, obviously they're used to working with actors, so there is a lot of flexibility. Um, but first of all, you know, how much in advance generally do you know about a gig? Is it literally for like that week and you find out a couple of days before, or do you have it scheduled like well in advance? How, 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 you know, how, uh, how long before a day or, or a shift or a gig do you know about it? Um, it, it varies wildly. Um, it's, I'd say the average is probably, uh, week and a half, two, three weeks beforehand. Um, but you know, I think I have a, I think I have a gig scheduled for October right now at the moment. (laughs) Nice. Um, and then sometimes you'll get, you'll get the frantic text that says, Hey, are you free tomorrow from, you know, 3 PM to midnight? Right. And 
you own the correct uniform and then you're like, uh, I'm, I can be there at four and I have everything but the tie or something. Right. Uh, and they're like, all right, fine, we'll make that work. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it can, it can vary wildly. Um, and, but the, the beautiful thing about that to me is that I'm completely within my rights to, to just be like, I'm not free. Can't do it. Um, and you know, it sucks for, it really sucks for the staffing people. I can't really imagine why anybody would want to, <laughs> to work in booking or staffing for a, a catering company. Um, but, uh, it's really sort of on them. You know, they have to, they understand going in that, that you're really their second choice. Right. Um, right. And, <laughs> uh, you know, like I said, I, I tend not to, turn down any shifts that I'm available for, but literally the second that I get an audition for pretty much anything, I'm, I'm canceling that shift. Well, um, that's, that's exactly what I was getting. That's what I was going to ask you. So I'm assuming, as you said, that because it, they're working with actors, that there is a lot of that, a lot of last minute canceling and so forth. So yeah. how do they deal with that? And, you know, you want to be able to do that, but you also want to be someone they're not going to stop offering shifts to, right? So you have to kind of balance that. Or you don't want to be someone who's always, always canceling, right? Sure. Um, most of them have uh, about a 48-hour policy. Okay. Um, that if, you know, if you cancel within 48 hours, it's got to be some sort of emergency. It can't just be, right. like... Um, you know, I have uh, uh, I have this audition coming out. Right. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes they'll work with you uh, within that forty eight hour window. Uh, but you, I I would say probably you definitely don't want to become the the guy or the girl that <laughs> that is constantly doing that. Exactly. Um, but beyond that forty eight hours, I really have no qualms about canceling, especially because um, there are so many people on the rosters of these catering companies that. Okay. They they can they can find someone to pick gotcha. that shift up. Gotcha. Um, Ninety nine times out of a hundred, within a couple hours. Nice. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really just sort of shameless about it uh, to the point where I, I mean, like I said, I I if I'm available, I I say yes to the shift. I stick it on my calendar um, with the full knowledge that if it's not within that forty eight hours, I can cancel. And, uh, I mean, maybe other people have different experiences, but I have not, uh, I haven't received anything that I would consider uh, negative repercussions from that. It's also um, sort of remarkable, and I'm, maybe this has just been luck, but it's, it's just sort of remarkable how many times it's worked out perfectly where, you know, I'll get an audition appointment and... Uh, it'll be for say 3:30 p.m. and I'll have a shift that starts at three, and I'll email back the the project and I'll say, "Hey, I have work at three. Is there any way that you can uh, stick me on an appointment that is before you know 2 p.m. so that I have time to do the audition in case they're running late, get to my shift, and everything's fine?" And more often than not, they are able to do that, and then you don't, and then you don't even have to to cancel the shift, and you're able to do both of them. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like, and then and then there are those beautiful times where they they offer the appointment to you 
at the perfect time. <laughs> and then you don't have to do anything. You just say yes. Uh, and then you've got a both and then, and then you're booked. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, that's, it's, to be honest, if, if I were receiving any sort of repercussions for, for canceling shifts more than 48 hours in advance, I'd probably just go back to restaurants because I actually enjoy working in restaurants and bars more. Mm. I enjoy the work more and I enjoy the sort of, uh, mental stability of knowing exactly where I'm going and having a really clear and firm idea of what I'm going to do that day and what's going to be expected of me um, more than I do with catering. And the only reason that I don't still work in restaurants is that, you know, in the universe of jobs, restaurants are super flexible, but compared to catering, they're just really not. You know, if I tried to cancel a restaurant shift 48 hours in advance, uh, the staffing manager would throw a fit and rightly so <laughs> yeah well to that you know i that's true although these days they have apps and things and you can kind of you know like you cancel it and somebody else picks it up all through the app so there are there are some options but i know what you're saying and yeah. um so you know first of all it makes sense what you said because they're being very clear with their policy 48 hours which is very reasonable and you're being very clear that you'll adhere to that policy and also that within the bounds of that policy, if you get an acting thing, you're gonna, it's gonna be your priority. So that all, that all sounds very reasonable. Um, yeah. and so let's say it's not a, you know, someone is reliable and they do go to their shifts and they do want to, you know, want shifts. Um, once they're on the gig, what are some of your tips for, for doing well and, and being someone that they do want to have back? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say uh, when I first started out, uh, I, you know, I had been working in restaurants for a while and I was probably a little, honestly, a little too much of a self-starter. Like I would see something and be like, oh, that looks like a thing that needs to be done and I would do it. Yeah. Um, but so often, especially when you're, uh, when you're basically just a worker bee for the event, you don't have uh, eyes on the whole... It's really similar to a, a production in that way. You don't have eyes on the whole thing. Mm, um, so you might see something and you're like, oh, that looks like a thing that needs to be done. I know from other events that I've worked, uh, like you'll see a stack of... Uh, you'll see a stack of plates that are wrapped in plastic and you're like, oh, I know that we unwrap." Right. Wait, uh, that's what we do. Yeah. Um, so you'll just start unwrapping it. Um, but then yeah. a captain might come around and be like, why are you unwrapping those? Uh, those don't need to be unwrapped yet. Those have to stay wrapped because yeah. of this thing that's happening and they need to be transported over here. And you're like, oh, man, I'm sorry. Like, I just saw them and I thought, right. what, yeah, one, uh, one of the big things that they tell people not to do is at the end of a shift um, and all the guests are gone and the tables are just full of glassware. And the most efficient way to get rid of the glassware is to uh, take them one type at a time and to wait until the, the guys in sanitation, guys and girls in sanitation, are ready for for the type of glassware. And sometimes somebody will try to be a self-starter and be like, oh, I see no water glasses left on the table. That means the next one is white wine. I'm going to pick up all the white wine glasses and then that starts a trend where everybody um, starts doing that. And then in sanitation, they're like, we're not ready for that yet. Um, gotcha. 
And so it's it's weird and counterintuitive, but I would say like don't don't be a self starter. Um, and what is far more helpful, and what what I've heard Captain say is what's far more helpful. And you might feel annoying, and you might feel like a, a, a gadfly, but walk up to the captain, stand there until they're done dealing with with whatever they're dealing with, and say, "I did." I did that thing we were doing. What's next? And then they'll say, great, here's this. Can you do this? And you'll say, great. And then you go do that thing. You finish it. You go back to the captain. You say, I did that thing. What's next? Um, and honestly, that's, that's what I, that's what I have done. And I, I think it works out best for everybody. That's, that's great advice. And I, I like what you said about it being similar to a production in that. You don't know what's supposed to be going on, so you just kind of show up and do what you're told to do. I really like that. And also, yes. it, it's getting a little cathartic for me, but it's interesting that you compared it to a regular restaurant shift because um, I got so sick of being a regular waiter personally. I just, I really couldn't handle it anymore. This was years ago now. But for me, now you got me thinking about it, I think I would enjoy the catering thing because you're not stressing about your individual tables and tips or anything. You're being paid oh, yeah. by the hour. So like yeah. you said, you're just a worker bee. You do what you're told. I'm much more, that's much more my style of working anyway. So actually yeah. for me, compared to being a regular waiter, this sounds like heaven. <laughs> it really yeah, does. There's some, some people that really enjoy it and yeah. it, it really jives with them. Yeah. Uh, personally, it's, it's, it's it's not really how I love to work. Okay. Um, and I I still have a problem with this. Actually, is I I tend to work really quickly. Right. Um, and I try to do things um, as quickly and efficiently as possible because that's how I'm trained. That's how I've been trained in restaurants to work. Right. I'm like if I'm not moving, I'm not making money. Right. Um, and in catering, it's just not true. There's a there's a thing that people say that I actually hate. Um, <laughs> but it's a popular saying among, among the cater waiter crowd uh, of just hurry up and wait. Yep. There's so much standing around doing nothing. Like more so often you will go up to the captain and you'll say, uh, Hey, I finished this thing. What's next? And they'll sort of rack their brain and look around and bite their lip for something for you to do. <laughs> and then finally just be like, you know what? Nothing. We're just good. We're just waiting until these people show up. And again, it's another good comparison because hurry up and wait is how it can be on a set as well. So yeah. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, man, you're making me realize now that I probably would have done well in the catering game. I should have gotten into that years ago. So uh, we may have to talk off the air. But anyway, yes. um, that's all very cool. And I think you've, you've enlightened a lot of people listening about another type of day job that's available for actors, which is great. Um, mm -hmm. So thanks for all that. So um, let's get into your background and how you got started. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia, mm -hmm. just south of D.C. Okay. And um, how did, did acting start for you early? Were you getting into it in school? or? Um, I, I started seriously uh, thinking about acting in somewhere between sixth and seventh grade. Mm -hmm. 
I was lucky to go to a school where um, every grade every year would would put on a production of some sort, um, and and that included uh, kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, nice. And you know, up through fifth grade, it was uh, always um, something probably more akin to skits than anything else. Mm-hmm. But starting in sixth grade is where uh, they would start to turn into like you know, legit productions. Um, and we, in sixth grade, we did uh, an off-brand version of Snow White. Um, and I played one of the dwarves, and I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. Yeah. Um, in seventh grade, uh, the seventh graders always did a Shakespeare. Um, and we did Twelfth Night, and I played Malvolio, and I, I came traipsing out in my yellow stockings and cross garters. <laughs> and and everybody's just laughing their butts off at me. And I'm like, this is awesome. This, I'm having so much fun with this. Uh, and then eighth grade was always a musical. And we did Camelot. And I played Mordred, which is where I discovered my love of playing villains. Um, and it was really sort of a uh, hobby slash extracurricular, even through high school, um, even though I did... Uh, I, I was lucky enough to uh, play uh, Jack in The Importance of Being Earnest, as well as Antonio in Merchant of Venice High School. Um, and it was something that I was like, this is definitely something I want to study in college. I'm not quite sure that I'm ready to decide that this is what I want to get do with my life. Um, and then it was uh, when I went to college, I went to Marietta College in Southeast Ohio, uh, and it was my four years of training there that that's when I decided, you know what, now this is this is it. This is what I'm doing. Very cool. And uh, which dwarf, by the way? Uh, the, so his name was not Doc. His name was Sarge. He was <laughs> he was the lead. Oh, he was the lead dwarf. <laughs> gotcha. Cool. Um, so that's cool. So let's talk about that. So. Um, and, and training is another big topic I love getting into on this podcast. So you said you had four good years of, of acting training in college. What was the training style? Sure. Um, I, I I wouldn't call it acting training, actually, okay. uh, interestingly enough. Um, I, as far, I could be wrong about this, but as far as I know, Marietta College is the only uh, place that offers a BFA in theater. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've seen BFAs and acting and directing and playwriting and specialized, specialized fields like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but I, but I haven't, uh, I haven't come across another BFA in theater. Yeah, that's a good uh, and, point. And so what that meant was that I, you know, I was of course interested in acting, but I took classes and worked on productions in, in almost every capacity you can think of. Um, I, uh, I created costumes, I hung in focused lights, I designed lights, I built sets, uh, I, I wrote a couple of plays, uh, you know, I did dramaturgy, I directed, I acted, um, and I, I wouldn't have traded that experience for the world because I think it makes me a better collaborator. Um, I think it, uh, gives me an appreciation for, for the entire production and for the work that everybody's doing. Um, what that meant though, was that at the end of four years, 
I was like, okay, that was all great. And I think it, I think it was useful. Um, but I do think I need some more focused acting training, which is why I was interested in going to graduate school, uh, which is what I ended up doing. And then I did the three year graduate training, uh, which was more acting training where you're spending, you know, uh, 18 hours a week in class acting, uh, movement, voice and speech, stage combat, uh, as well as teaching and being in production. Um, and that was also invaluable time and training that I wouldn't trade for the world. And I think the sum total of it, uh, it can't be ignored when, when looking at sort of where I am today in my career and who I am as an actor and as a person. No, it all makes sense. And it's great that you were so self-aware that you, you thought you needed that acting training. It's the opposite of me. I, I was always so resistant to formal training. And I think that's why now I'm so fascinated by it because I know it would have helped me. I know I was, you know, I shouldn't have resisted it. And um, so now I'm just really interested in it, uh, you know, from the sure. other side. Um, well, I, I mean, I also, I, 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 it's, it's like, you know, you hear the stories about people who are, who are famous actors and they're like, oh, they never took an acting class in their life, like Alan Alda. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I loved my path and my experience and my training, but I also wouldn't ever, you know, tell anybody um, oh, like, there's no way you can be a good actor without, without like, going to school. Like, I think that's sort of ridiculous. Um, Alan Alda is a fantastic actor, and if it's true that he's never taken an acting class, like, he's sort of the proof in the pudding. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I, I, all I would say is, like, don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> well, no, it's not, a, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not an actor anymore, so it, it's all fine for me anyway, but it's just interesting to think about but you're absolutely right that um, that every actor's path is different, of course. So I, I do want to hear about your grad school training, though. But first, um, you got a you also got a double bachelor's in political science, right? I did. Yes. What was that? What? 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 Why? <laughs> why was that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, uh, so my relationship with that degree and that field uh, it, it has gone through a couple of transformations. Uh, the first thing is that, like, it, it, it literally started out as uh, a backup. Um, as I said, you know, I entered undergrad. Not I knew that I wanted to study theater. I wasn't sure that I was ready to like decide that theater was going to be my career. Um, something I really enjoyed in high school was reading political philosophy uh, like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and um, and uh, like sitting down in a group and arguing about it and having a discussion about it. Um, and so when I declared as a political science major, that is that was what my understanding of political science was, which is completely wrong. Sure. <laughs> political science uh, tends to be far more based in uh, data and analysis and um, uh, and in uh, you know studying trends that has a lot more to do with probably I think like sociology yeah. uh, than it does political philosophy yeah um, but I declared and uh, you know I went through 
a year and a half, two years, making the classes and doing the thing. And by the time I realized that it wasn't really what I thought it was, it was, it was sort of to the point where I was like, you know what, I might as well just finish this thing because I'm so close. Um, <laughs> now, what uh, the, the the side benefit of that was that I, I wasn't very uh, politically literate or uh, interested in politics before entering undergrad, and then by taking these classes, I, I began to be far more interested in that stuff to the point where um, that I. Uh, I, I pay much closer attention to politics than I did when I was 18. Um, but the other funny story about that was that uh, they changed, the political science department changed the catalog when I was in maybe my third year because um, they were doing a whole revamp of the, of the program uh, to be more focused on sort of the statistical analysis and, um, you know, writing papers and uh, and being uh, more uh, scholarly, and I, they told me um, that there was this one class that I had to take that was a prerequisite to take the capstone class, uh, and it conflicted with some theater class that I really wanted to take. Uh, and they were like, "Well, you know, you you have to take it; it's a prereq." Um, but because they had added it to the catalog after I started. Um, I, they they didn't really have any right to say that to me. And so what I said was, I mean, if you're going to make me do that, I'll just drop the major. Wow. And they were like, oh, well, well hold on. Maybe we can, yeah. <laughs> maybe we can, we can work something out. And then, you know, we did and it was fine. Um, you know, because I, at the end of the day, like I, I wanted that degree. Um, maybe not as much as I wanted a theater degree, but I, you know, I had put in, enough of the work that I wanted to finish it. And they, of course, wanted the, they wanted the student uh, to be in their class and, you know, up their numbers and, um, and show that they were, you know, graduating people. Um, so, so it all worked out in the end, but, um, but yeah, it started out as, as a backup that I didn't really understand what I was doing with. And then at this point has just become sort of an interesting footnote on, <laughs> on my, my collegiate career. No, it's great. And listen, you never know, first of all. And second of all, you know, any knowledge, experience, field of study helps you have more as an artist to, to base on and just as a human being. So, yeah, nothing wrong with that. Um, I agree. Yeah. So where would you end up going then for your MFA? Uh, I got my MFA uh, in acting from Ohio University. Um, just a quick 50 minutes west of Marietta College um, in Athens, Ohio. And uh, like I said, that was a three-year three year training program. Um, the uh, foundational acting training is, uh, is the Meisner program, uh, Meisner progression. Um, and yeah, and we did, uh, we did a whole bunch of stuff. We did uh, viewpoints and Fitzmaurice voice training and Linklater and Shakespeare and styles and stage combat and, and all that, all that good stuff, all that good, yummy actor stuff. Yeah, well, that's, I, I want to talk about that, because like I said, I'm fascinated by this stuff. So, um, you said it's Meisner-based, and I've actually talked about Meisner with a couple of other people on the podcast, um, or at least one. I, um, I took a tiny bit of Meisner at one point myself, 
So I'm familiar with like the most basic rudimentary level of it, but I didn't get, mm-hmm. I didn't get far. And I kind I regret that. I feel like had I stuck with it, once you get to like what it ends up resulting in, you know, once you get to the higher levels of it, I'm sure it's fantastic. A lot of people say it's, you know, it's, it's the best, or, you know, for, for some people, they feel it's really the best training. Um, so for people that don't know, or even people like me who only know the most, I think, you know, most actors at least know the beginning of it with the repetition exercise. You know, everybody knows yeah. the repetition exercise, but obviously it, it gets way beyond that. So can you, uh, for those of us who don't know it, um, kind of give a basic sketch of what the Meisner technique is really all about? And, and you know, once you get past that initial first step of the repetition exercise and everything, where does it ultimately lead to? What's the ultimate, you know, foundation of, of Meisner, for, of, of that kind of training? Sure. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do my best and hope that my... Uh hope that my mentor is listening and uh, don't think I've butchered it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. I would say, I would say that uh, the, the thing, the, the point of the Meisner training is to get you to a place where you can be in the moment enough to go through uh, to go through a script and go from point of view to point of view to point of view, um, and specifically to go uh, from strong point of view to strong point of view to strong point of view, um, because so often what happens and w- what happened to me a lot, um, especially when I was younger, was that I would I would you know get in a rut uh, when I was doing theater work I would uh, I would go through the motions and I would figure out like okay this is how I say this this is how I say this and I wait for the I wait for the other person to finish their line and then I um, and then I move on with the text um, and and you know being in the moment uh, is, is something that you're like oh yeah of course I want to be in the moment um, like it's a, it's sort of a, a thing that people say a lot um, but for me, like, I didn't really truly understand what that meant until I went through the Meisner training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you do the, you do the repetition exercise and you're like, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. How is this making me a better actor? Um, but what it's doing is it's, it's actually devaluing the words that are coming out of your mouth so that you can stop thinking about them. Right. And you can just literally be like, okay, how do I, how am I feeling right now in this moment? What is my point of view? And you get to a point in the repetition exercise where you're like, my point of view is that you've told me I'm wearing a blue shirt 10 times in a row. Yeah. And it's starting to fucking piss me off. Yeah. Can I curse? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you absolutely can. And, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Too. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and then that comes out of you, and then the other person gets to be like, "Why are you mad at me? I'm, you know, I'm here doing the same thing with you. I'm not trying to piss you off. I'm just doing what the instructions are. Um, except you can't say any of that. You have to say you're wearing a blue shirt, yeah. which is only going to piss me off more because I'm like, stop saying that. Um, and and 
for me, like that, that's sort of the, one of the points of the, that sort of foundational repetition exercise. And it gets to a point where you, you're, you're adding in, um, just as many elements, uh, you're, you're adding in elements left and right as you go through the progression so that you, there are more places that more pieces of information that you can be taking in, um, with all of your senses to develop your point of view in any one particular moment. Um, and I think at its best, the Meisner progression uh, and the Meisner training gets you to a place where every night, um, you know, something else triggers something else in you that just sort of keeps you alive and keeps you um, in the moment with your scene partner. Because the words are always going to stay the same. Right. And if you, if you get into the habit of just saying them uh, and saying them in a particular way, it's not going to change. You're not going to be in the moment. You're not going to be having a truthful moment. Um, but if you are so, if you're trained and you're hyper attenuated enough to your scene partner that you notice that they raised their eyebrow a little higher tonight than they did the other night and you're like, well, why, like, why did, why did you do that? That's, that's sort of that, you know, tweaked something in me that, that made me, uh, that made me uncomfortable. And then that's going to come out in the performance. It's going to be more truthful. Um, and of course, you know, you hear, you hear stories about people just sort of completely going off the rails and you have to balance it with, you know, you got to do the blocking and you got to do the, you have to say the correct lines. Um, you can't, (laughs) you can't be improvising with, uh, with, uh, intimacy or with, uh, swordplay. (laughs) No, but you, but, but you can find a way to, um, you can find a way to do all of those things and do them in the way that has been agreed to while also staying in the moment and going point of view to point of view to point of view, because that's how, that's why we do things. We have a point of view about something and we want to do something to address our point of view about it. Um, you know, I, I, I'm in a scene and uh, my partner is cheating on me and my point of view is that I, I am unhappy about that, and so I'm going to confront them about it. Um, and if I didn't have that point of view, if my point of view was like, eh, whatever, then I wouldn't do anything about it. I would, I would take no action, and I wouldn't be acting. Um, that's sort of an ex- like a hyper extreme example. Like, how could you not have a point of view about that? Um, but I think the Meisner training, what it is good at, is uh, letting yourself and allowing you to have a point of view about literally everything and to have that point of view be as strong as it can possibly be while also uh, adhering to the text. That's excellent. I really like that. That's a great explanation. And, um, you know, one of the things you said, oh, everybody talks about being in the moment. You know, I think what this illustrates is that it actually takes a lot of work to really be in the moment in that, in that truly alive way that actors need to be. Yeah. Very cool. And, um, so you said there are other, of course, elements to the training as well, uh, movement, voice, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we, uh, I don't think I can list everything that we did, uh, but I'd say for me that the things that I enjoyed the most were, uh, I really enjoyed the stage combat aspect of it, you know, at the end of, our second year, we, we, uh, you know, took the test and we were certified and unarmed. 
and rapier and dagger through the uh, SAFD. Um, we did the Fitzmaurice voice training, which uh, is one of the strangest things that you can witness and do. Um, but I, I loved it, and uh, it's something that um, that I haven't done too much of since moving to New York. I, I tend to do it sort of when I'm in production, uh, mm. but it's hard to find time to do the practice um, while you're <laughs> while you're in New York and trying to live that New York life. Sure. Um, we took a Shakespeare class, um, and I, I love doing Shakespeare. Um, yeah, I mean, it, like beyond the Meisner, it was really sort of a grab bag of, of different styles and training. We did a little bit of Suzuki. Um, we did viewpoints. We did something called authentic movement, yeah. um, which, uh, I hadn't been familiar with, but is is just sort of, you know, spending spending some time literally just letting your body move however it wants to move and not making any sort of judgments about um, about what what that is. Just like yep. letting it be and exist. Yep. Um, Actually, I did that in a class once, yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. So that sounds great. Sounds like a great, you know, versatile training package. Sorry, what was the name of the vocal, um, the, the vocal uh, training you were talking about? It's uh, it's Fitzmaurice. Fitzmaurice. F i t z m a u r i c. Oh, okay, right, right. I I think I've seen that name. So, do you mind just elaborating on that a little bit? It sounds very interesting. What what is that? What is that all about? Sure. Um. I and I'll, I'll once again hope that my mentors aren't listening in and, and just <laughs> screaming at how how wrongly I'm uh, <laughs> characterizing this. All right. Um, all right. But the, the Fitzmaurice training uh, essentially is about um, is essentially about putting your body in a fight or flight mode. Um, that's that's incorrect. I'm gonna I'm gonna st- I'm gonna I'm gonna step back and rephrase that. Um, it's it's about relaxing everything in your body except for one particularly localized. A group of muscles, and what you do is you uh, you. It's so hard to describe without watching it. Um, you you put that group of muscles in what's called a tremor, um, and it it sounds more difficult than it actually is. You just put you put you put them in a position where that group of muscles starts shaking involuntarily. You're not actively shaking your hand out or anything. You're just putting your, um, you're putting your muscles in a position where it's shaking voluntarily. And what you do is you allow the fact that there's energy going into that to relax the rest of you so that you can do what's called destructuring. <laughs> and, um, you, uh, and you, you allow your breath to just sort of flow naturally and then you very, very slowly introduce structuring back into it, um, where you start to maybe control your breath a little bit, um, and you start to maybe add uh, voicing, and then you start to um, add consonants, and then you start to add words. Um, and it's, you know, you spend half an hour or so 
literally lying on the ground shaking and people are, and like moaning and, and <laughs> uh, making strange noises and people are like, what is happening over here? Like actors are weird, but this is a whole new level. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, the reason that I really love it is because, you know, the stereotype is like you all get together before the show and you all do tongue, t- tongue twisters. Um, uh, but the, the Fitzmaurice training looks at that and goes, okay, well, you're just sort of layering on more muscular tension mm-hmm. and building on those patterns on top of what's already there. If you're able to put yourself in a completely relaxed state so that, um, so that, you know, your jaw is nice and relaxed and like your diaphragm is nice and relaxed and the breath is just sort of happening. And then you let that happen for five minutes and then maybe you start making a noise as you breathe and then you start adding consonants and then you turn that into text. And then, you know, 40, 30, 40 minutes later, um, you, you feel in control of your diaphragm and you feel able to sort of speak to the rafters and speak to the, you know, the nosebleeds. Um, and then you've, you've rebuilt the musculature that it takes to, to create consonants. Um, sort of from scratch. Um, yeah. And for me, like it's, it's part meditation, part relaxation, part, um, part vocal warm up, Uh, and it's all sort of rolled into one. And that's why I really enjoy it. That sounds fascinating. It really does. That's great. And, um, you mentioned Shakespeare. Uh, so here's an interesting question. You know, I, we could do a whole, a whole hour on, you know, how to do Shakespeare. Um, but, but, and I, and I would if we had, and I would if we had time, but, um, yeah. but here's an interesting question, which is, you know, people associate Meisner, for example, with very, as a contemporary acting style. And then when you do Shakespeare, you know, you get caught up in this challenge of getting past just the language and the poetry and, you know, not doing everything in this sort of heightened, superficial way where you're just saying the words, which, again, ironically, is is part of what you were talking about with the Meisner. So the question is, can you apply Meisner to something like Shakespeare? Um, I I can and I do. Um, Nice. (laughs) I, I, you know, I I suppose you'd have to, uh, you know, send someone out to like watch me perform it to see if uh, they think I'm doing it successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but, you know, personally, I, I think I am. Um, and the, the way that I look at it is this, um, it's the, the textual demands, uh, of Shakespeare, um, or of, uh, performing something that has poetry or rhythm or verse or, um, or, uh, heightened in any way language um, is, is just another uh, another ornament is another, another piece of the thing that you have to do your work and you have to uh, um, have the experience and the training to, to know, okay, like there's, there's a rhythm and a meter to this uh, that I have to stick to the same way that when someone teaches you a fight, there are uh, there are moves that you have to do, and you have to do them the same way every time. Um, and 
one of the beautiful things about Shakespeare is that it's it's sort of like built in there and you just have to get in there uh and and you know figure out what it is for you and build and build what that is and then you bring your Meisner training or whatever training it is that you have uh to, to have a truthful moment. Um and then you bring that to the fore and you fill that poetry and that rhythm and that meter and that verse with you know the truth of the moment and the the truth of the scene. Um I honestly don't find it very difficult. Um like once you you know, once you make sure that you have um done your work textually, Shakespeare's characters tend to be very like hard on their sleeve. Um it's yeah. it is not difficult to discern their point of view about things. Right. Often they will turn to the audience and say exactly what their point of view is. <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly. Right. So, and it, and it's just about, um, you know, making sure that that point of view is strong enough. Um, I think one of the things that people tend to do a lot with Shakespeare is they're like, Oh, it's, you know, floofy and flowery and there's lots of bows and bees and yeah. size. Um, but it, it, it's like the stakes could not be higher in any of that. <laughs> Right, absolutely, yeah. No, that that's a great way of putting it. It makes perfect sense. I love it. So you wanted the training, you got your MFA, you had all this great training. So after that, did you feel, you know, like that all really helped you, that you were confident that now you have this really good, you know, toolkit, so to speak, that you really felt strong in your in your technique and everything after that? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, Excellent. I, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I used to say that undergrad taught me how to be a student and, uh, grad school taught me how to be an artist. Right. Um, and the, the difference between the two was that, you know, I, I could turn in a performance that was fine, uh, after I graduated, um, undergrad. Um, but after I graduated from grad school, I was able to turn in a, a performance that I was proud of, um, if I, you know, if I did the work. Yeah. Um, and so I graduated grad school and, uh, and yeah, I, I, I felt, I felt confident in, um, in my training and in my craft and in my process. Um, and that's when I came to New York. Beautiful. So yeah, that's a perfect segue. So you did you come to New York right after grad school? Pretty much immediately. Um, uh, as as I said, I live with my girlfriend. Uh, she she lived in New Jersey at the time, um, and and had lived in New Jersey uh, since she was born. Um, so while I was wrapping up in graduate school, uh, you know, she was actually coming into New York to look at apartments. And, you know, we signed for an apartment that, uh, that we moved in on May 15th. I think I graduated on May 1st. There you go. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was about as immediate as, as it can get. Um, and yeah, I've uh, been here ever since and have been working and auditioning ever since then. Just curious, is, is she an actor any, or as well or no? She is. 
she she uh, does more musical, not more musical, but she does musical theater uh, more than me, um, and has and has that training. But she also uh, uh, performs in straight plays as well. So if she, I'm just you know, her being from New Jersey and you from Virginia, how, how did you guys meet? Uh, we actually met in undergrad. Oh, you were. Uh, I thought she, that's what I yeah. figured. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, we both ended up uh, at Marietta together. Well, you know, it's funny. There's different schools of thoughts and different experiences, and obviously there's no right or wrong answer, but it is interesting because for some people, you know, if your your partner is also an actor, it works great. For some actors, they have to date people who are, you know, miles away from anything yeah. involving that. <laughs> um you know, but you guys have obviously uh, found that it works well for you, because and, and that's great. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that um, really helps us is that we both understand we both understand the sort of eccentricities of yeah how this thing works. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, at, at the end of uh, uh, I think it's in September, or so you know, she's gonna go away on a gig for six weeks and because I am also an actor and I have also done that multiple times I'm not like I'm not freaking out about her leaving for six weeks and uh, and not being with her I understand that that comes with territory um, uh, and you know as you said it's, uh, everybody's got a different path and different priorities and different ways they deal with things but uh, for us, that's one of the things that um, has really benefited us with both of us being in the field is that when something ridiculous, when something that somebody else would look at as ridiculous comes up, we're just sort of both like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's how it works. Yeah, and uh, it's great. And it's funny, another another big topic of this podcast is what happens to people, you know, when they first get to New York, finding an apartment, finding jobs, etc. Um, you guys, of course, had a unique situation that you already had each other. You already got the apartment together. So that's all a big help. But how did yeah. you find it when you guys did first settle in? You know, was it difficult trying to start to find survival jobs? Or how did you guys, like, you know, what, what were some of the first things you guys did when you got here? Um, in as I look at it in retrospect, it really wasn't terribly difficult. Um, I I think I had a, a job in a restaurant within, uh, I want to say two weeks of moving in, and then I had another one within the next two weeks. Um, so, and, you know, not making fantastic money and also, uh, you know, very little experience in food service at the time. So I was sort of learning the ropes and sort of uh, just trying to figure out how to how to do that. Um, but it's funny because, like, when you move in, it like it it costs so much money yeah. to move, yeah. especially you know I I had just come from Athens, Ohio, uh, where I believe my rent was two hundred eighty-two dollars a month. Um, <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, and then I moved to Astoria, New York, where it was not that. Um, so there's the upfront costs of moving and 
then just the fact that now you're living in a place where your dollar does not go as far. Nope. And, <laughs> and I remember like in the first week being like, I, I'm going to flame out in a month. Yeah. I'm not going to make it a month in this place. Yeah. Um, but then you, uh, you know, you get the job and you start working and you're like, Oh, okay. 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 I understand this is making sense. Um, and then it just sort of becomes a negotiation of, uh, you know, how much, how much can you work? How much do you work? How much do you, you know, devote to, like, do you work for the catering company and you take every shift and then you just cancel every one of them? Like, right. do you work in three restaurants? Do you work in one restaurant? Right. Do you do all your shifts there? Like, you know. Yep, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny because in retrospect, there was like maybe two weeks there where I I was just sort of terrified that that, that everything was wrong and I was never going to make it and uh, I was never going to find a job. Um, uh, but then I found one and I found another one and then I've just sort of bounced from restaurant to restaurant to to catering to restaurants. Uh, yeah, there you go. And uh, you mentioned how you know you guys since you're both actors, you both get it. And this is, you know, the lifestyle you've both chosen. But do you find it as a couple, like, you know, do you guys have to sort of make an effort to like plan like, Hey, we're both free this night. This is like our date night, that kind of thing. Or you don't really, or you don't, you don't really worry about it. <laughs> um, it, it, it is something that, uh, it is something that you have to, I feel like it's it's probably not different in any other relationship. Sure. Um, but you do have to make time for each other sometimes. Um, I think that's something that I'm personally not really great at. Oh. Um, and sometimes she, she'll remind me, like, hey, like, I want to spend time with you. We haven't, you know, despite living together, we'll sometimes go, like, three or four days without really seeing much of each other because... Uh, you know, maybe she'll work in the morning and I'll work at night and then she'll have an audition in the morning and then I'll work at night and then I'll have a rehearsal. That's what I mean, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is, you know, it's, it, I assume it's like any other relationship where you do have to, you do have to put in the work and, uh, sometimes I do need a reminder of that. (laughs) Sure. No, I hear you. Um, cool. So, and let's see. So you, so you moved to New York how many years ago? About four years ago now? Uh, just under four. It'll be four on May 15th. Great. And over those few years, uh, what are some of your favorite, um, gigs that you've had and any shows that are any, any job, you know, any uh, acting work that was particularly, uh, fulfilling for you so far? Sure. Um, I, I have to say I've been, I've been very lucky. Um, I've, I've managed to, to work a fair bit, uh, since moving here. Nice. Um, my my first, my first big one was uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, the the final adventure. I think uh, it's uh, it's the version by Stephen Deep, um, and I played Moriarty, nice. uh, extending my. Well, I, I was gonna say that goes back to your thing about playing villains. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, and that was uh, the Lake Dome Theater Company in Colorado. Um, that one was funny because I uh, I had been in New York for maybe six months or so, and I called my parents to tell them, 
and my, uh, you know, bless them. They were very confused. They were like, wait, so are you moving to Colorado? And I was like, no, <laughs> this, this is the thing that I told you where, you know, they, they all audition in New York, yeah. which is why I'm here, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's see. I did that. A um, couple of months later, in the summer of 2016, uh, I was actually able to go back to my undergrad alma mater and do their uh, their. They started a little Shakespeare festival out there that has since been growing, um, and is now called the Pioneer Theater Festival, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, played Petruchio and Taming of the Shrew out there, which was a ton of fun. Um, nice. Let's see. Let's. What was the next? What was the next great one? Um, I think the next one that uh, that I was uh, super proud of and, and really had a great time with uh, was uh, the Camden Shakespeare Festival in um, Camden, Maine. Uh, mm-hmm. Where I played Romeo as well as Claudio in Much Ado About Nothing. Nice. Um, and most most recently, uh, I think the one of my favorites was um, I guess played Bill Slank and Hawking Clam in a production of Peter and the Starcatcher at um, uh, Playhouse and Park in West Hartford, Connecticut. Beautiful. And uh, let's talk about this whole playing villains thing. It's very interesting. You know, you mentioned it a couple of times that you like doing that and did the Moriarty thing. Um, You know, playing villains is one of those things that I think a lot of actors do love the idea of. And, you know, you always hear that that thing about, oh, a, a villain can't think of himself as a villain and so forth. And it is very difficult, I think, to not play it as a cliche, not play it as some kind of caricature or something. So, so what's your approach uh, to uh, to playing villains? Sure, um, I I will say that it is sometimes a lot of fun to of just play the caricature. Oh, okay. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I don't think I've ever done it full out in a production, but I remember uh, I think it was in somebody else's directing class that they were directing like a melodramatic scene and they were like, I really just want like Snively Whiplash from you. And I was like, great. That sounds like <laughs> so much fun. Um, and it was. It was a lot of fun. Nice. Um, but uh, I do think that more often than not, it's uh, it's more compelling to to play the villain as as a, as a, you know a human being that could be your next door neighbor, um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I for my money, I don't tend to approach them any differently than I approach any other role, um, because if if you read the play and you're like, oh, that's the villain, it's on the page. And you don't you don't have to you don't have to add anything onto you don't have to gild the lily as long as so, you right. play the character truthfully, um, the audience is going to come away with the, the same idea that you had when you read it, which was that that character was the villain. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it goes back to the point of view to point of view to point of view. And yeah. it, it, all it means is that uh, you may have to adjust what some of your, you know, uh, personal points of view about the world are. You know, more often than not, the, the villain has a very different idea of what morality is or what is is good for humanity or the world as a whole. Right. Um, and more often... Right. Yeah, because, like, again... Just, go ahead. This, no, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just saying that, you know, again, this is one of those things you hear, is that in the villain's mind, they're doing the right thing. Whatever their reasons are, they believe that that their choices are the correct ones. So, yeah, it's very interesting. And sometimes it, it literally just boils down to... I'm doing what I believe is the right thing because it's best for me. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's how I believe people should operate in the world is to do what's best for them, um, for, for themselves. Um, and, uh, like I can't think of anything more <laughs> sort of real and truthful and grounded than that. It's just like, I'm just doing what's best for myself. I'm looking out for number one and you can't tell me that's wrong. Exactly. Absolutely. Well said. So, um, it's funny. I will tell you that <laughs> when I, when I was trying to be an actor, you know, it, you talk about just digging a deeper and deeper hole of fantasy for myself. My thing was, if I ever made it big and if I ever acted in movies and was good enough to be at a certain level, then my uh, my very specific thing was I wanted to be the villain in a Bond movie at some point. So, like, talk about, you know, the tiniest minutia percentage even of successful actors that get, yeah. to, uh, get to be a Bond villain, but that's that's what I fantasized about. Uh, um, that, 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 you know, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Absolutely. <laughs> um, cool, just a few more things here. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, come up a lot on the podcast is this idea that we really wish that acting schools, you know, at some point, at the end or whatever, would give the students a little bit more training on the actual business, because once they get out into the real world, the actual business is so different. Um, sure. Did your MFA program touch on, on any of that or no? It did a little bit. Um, you know, we had a we had a class that in our final semester um, that I think was literally called you know the business of acting or something like that. Right. And you know, we did sometimes we would do cold reads. Sometimes we would, uh, you know, uh, you know, film film scenes. Uh, and we like we're lucky enough to bring in a couple of casting directors to to work with us um, on. They would, you know, send us uh, sides, and we would come in, and we do them, and they would give us feedback on, you know, how the how how to audition for a casting director, especially on film. Yeah. Um, we did a day where we looked at everybody's website, everybody's headshot resume. Um, yeah. So we did we did a little bit of that, but I think it's. I mean, I, I agree that it would be great to have that sort of instruction and. Uh, and knowledge in an educational setting, but 
but I also understand, you know, this business changes so quickly. And if you're teaching full time at a university, then you're not, you're not in it anymore, you know, for better or worse, like you're, you have, you know, my mentors work sometimes in the summer. Um, but other than that, they're, they're, you know, they're not on the ground, uh, pounding the pavement, like in touch with how the business is, is changing from day to day, especially in the last 10 years or so with, you know, self tapes becoming such a big thing. Um, so through no fault of their own, there's really like not much that they can do. Um, they can talk about their experience uh, when they were living and working in New York or wherever they were. Um, but it's, it's, it's really, you know, it sucks, but you just kind of have to get there and do it and fail and then talk to other people and realize, oh, this is, you know, this is what I think I need to be doing or then, you know, I, I, I need new headshots or I, you know, I need to, you know, do these pay to plays or, uh, I need to literally just spend every waking second that I'm not working auditioning. Um, and it's, and to a certain extent, I don't know that there's much that a, that a, a school can do that. Like maybe some schools in New York would be able to, because they tend to hire working professionals who, and they are sort of structuring their classes around it. But, you know, where I was in Southeast Ohio, you know, we would bring, we brought in some casting directors and that was sort of the extent of what we were really able to do to get some instruction on how the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of being a working actor is right now in this moment. Yeah, no, that's, that is true. That is a really good point. You're right. And maybe it is, it is appropriate to save that component of training for once you get to New York or LA or wherever and actually meet people. That is a good point. And also, you know, I do believe in, you know, keeping the training of the craft, you know, separate and just focusing on that when you're in that training. I agree with that. I just mean, like, at the very end, maybe they could do a little. But you're right. You're right. That, that makes sense, what you said. And then, of course, there is that whole other subject you alluded to of, you know, if your acting teacher is actually a working actor and the the pros and cons of that. So, sure, sure, absolutely, right. absolutely. Um, no, but that, that really is a good point. You're absolutely right. Um, how do you find the audition process, and what what have you learned about that? What's your... What's your audition uh, audition tips? Sure, audition, um, audition philosophy. Well, it's it's the sort of thing that you know they, and you know this was told to me in school multiple times, and it's the sort of thing that you can repeat back uh, all you want, but you don't really understand it until you are doing it. Is that once you graduate, your your job you're not an actor, you are an auditioner. Right. And um, and it sucks because it is essentially a full-time job. Um, uh, you And you have to work your other full-time job to pay your bills, but you also have to work your full-time job to, to be auditioning. Um, I, I refresh playbill.com job section pretty yeah. much every single day. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm on actors access. I get emails sent to me whenever anything gets posted that, uh, that is 
even close to my type. Um, I uh, get emails sent to me from Broadway World anytime anybody posts for submission. And then, you know, if I look at my calendar and I'm not doing anything tomorrow, or if I have, uh, you know, up until 3 p.m. free, I'll, I'll jump online and see what, what EPAs are happening. Uh, and I'll do the thing where I'll go to the EPA and wait around and hope to get seen. Um, so you're, you're not equity. I'm not. I'm uh, EMC at the moment. Yeah. So, no, you're, that's funny that, you know, this has come up a lot, too, that your job is to audition, and that, that really seems to be the case. Um, and it's not an easy job. <laughs> it's really not. But um, Yeah, it's, it's exhausting. Yeah, I, it's when, exhausting. I, when I talk to... Um, I, I stole this term from a friend who I can't remember, um, but when I talk to my muggle friend um, about the business, I always say, you know, remember the last time you, you were job hunting and they're like okay and I'm like imagine that on top of working at your current job you're also doing that yeah except 24 7 exactly you never stop yeah yeah and they're always just sort of like wow that would suck and I'm like yes (laughs) yeah no it's it's exactly right um and you know this is another thing that's come up a lot you know the whole question of when to join equity and so forth you know, you're EMC, a couple of my other guests that I've had on have been EMC, and, you know, generally the common wisdom these days seems to be wait as long as you can, you know, or until you're sort of forced to join equity because, you know, once you are in equity, you know, the competition is harder and it's limited and it, and it costs you money and everything. So what yeah. what's what's your philosophy on on or your plan as far as as far as joining the union goes? You are EMC, but what are your what, what are your thoughts about about you know are, are you are you eager to join Equity or do you feel like it's best to keep that at bay for as long as possible? Um, I I wouldn't call myself eager to join Equity. Yeah. Um, although I don't know that if I were offered an equity contract tomorrow that I, I would ask if I could sign a non-union one instead. I would probably take my card tomorrow. Sure. Uh, if I, if I were offered that contract. Um, I mean, I, uh, I don't really know. Um, my, my line has always been, I would, I would take representation over my card any day. Okay. Um, right. although I don't know that, um, I mean, I, I have, I've never been represented and I've never been in a union. So who knows? This might, it might be a situation of, you know, the grass is always greener. Um, but for my money, the, the, the point of joining equity would be twofold. One would be to gain more access to auditions. Um, because I would be able to sort of sign up on the online portal and go to EPA is much easier and not have to wait around all day. Um, and, the, and the other point would be uh, to hopefully work at bigger and better theaters and to have more protections when working at those theaters. Right. Um, that said, you know, I've, I've had a casting director of a theater, like, look me in the eye and be like, don't join the union. I wouldn't be able to hire you if you did. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I, no, exactly. 
I think I, uh, I think one of the reasons that I have been fairly lucky living in New York, uh, is that I am non-union and, um, I, I mostly don't work for free. Um, I definitely will work for not very much. Um, and if, if you're a friend, um, then sometimes I'll do a project for free. Right. Um, but yeah, I think one of the reasons that I've been able to do that is because I'm not in the union and I'm, I'm, uh, and am able to take the lower bank job. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm just like everyone else on, on that topic at least. I'm sort of just swimming around in the ocean trying to find my own way. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And then of course you allude to the other decision every actor has to make for themselves is, you know, what, if any, work that doesn't pay am I willing to take and what are the reasons to take it and so forth. So, um, you know, that's another thing that everybody has to decide for themselves. Um, And have you found that the non-union regional theater jobs that you've done, you know, because you talked about the protections of equity, you know, have you found that the regional theaters you've worked for you know, that the, the conditions and the pay and the housing and the treatment has all been, has all been good. You know, they've taken good care of you guys, even non-union. Yeah, I, I've been, I've been pretty lucky. Um, I've, I've worked at a couple of regional theaters that are, uh, entirely non-union and a couple that are a mix of union and non-union. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've, I've been very lucky in that I've, I've never really found myself in a situation where I I was felt like I was being treated as less than human, um, or even as less than uh, the union members in, in a particular show. Um, you know, there there are a few things every now and then. Like for example, uh, there was a theater I worked at where um, you know the union members were required to be given like I think fifty pounds worth of shipping. Um, to, out to the project, um, and we weren't offered that. Uh, there, there's a, there is one theater that I won't name, uh, <laughs> where the the union members are paid. Um, let's see, seven hundred percent more Ooh. than the non-union company. Yeah, um, which uh, which I had a big problem with, um, yeah. especially because it was a theater that. Um, that seems to be d- doing pretty well financially. Right. And, you know, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not out here saying like, oh, the non-union actors deserve to be paid just as much as the union actors. They don't. Uh, you, you're not in the union for a reason. And, uh, and you, you, you benefit from that to a certain extent. So when, uh, when there is a mix, um, I, I, I do think that the union members probably deserve to get get paid better, but not to the, not to the tune of 700%. Right. Um, right. But, uh, but by and large, I've, I've found that, uh, you know, like every other industry, theater is full of humans who, uh, and, and nobody's trying to like be malicious or, or, uh, or hurt anyone else. And so you, you tend to get treated just as well as people are able to treat you. Makes sense, and that that is good to hear. 
right. Well, this has yeah. been uh, this has been really fantastic, Thomas. I want to thank you for doing it. Uh, really fun and and really enlightening on a lot of different things. Um, and uh, uh, so, like I said, we're going to post um, the various links and, and things we referred to uh, in the show ep- in the uh, episode notes uh, for mm-hmm. everybody. But do you want to share any personal social media, website or anything, or a website for your company or anything like that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I'll, I'll point everybody toward uh, the company is called Tantrum East. Mm-hmm. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and we also have a website, tantrumeast.com. Uh, personally, um, I'm, I'm not on the social media too much, but, you know, I do have a website, thomasrdaniels.com. Um, as, uh, and then, uh, I think my Instagram is flamacito underscore eight zero. Um, yeah, uh, you know, go ahead, give me a follow. I will maybe post once every three months or so. <laughs> right. There you go. It's, it's, it's a portion of the business that I'm not great at at the moment. Hey, um, no, I also, uh, I'd love to, I don't know if there's anyone out there listening who lives in either New Hampshire or Maine. Uh, but I do have two projects coming up that I'm pretty excited about. Um, the first is a play called Insignificance by Terry Johnson at the Winnipesaukee Playhouse. Um, and speaking of playing villains, uh, I'll be playing Joe McCarthy up there. Oh, wow. Um, it's not actually named Joe McCarthy, but it's clear from the text that it's supposed to be a, a facsimile of Joe McCarthy. Right. Um, and then... Uh, I'm very excited about this one. In Camden, Maine, I'm going back to the Camden Shakespeare Festival uh, to play Grumio and Taming of the Shrew, and then also to play Hamlet. Fantastic. Congratulations. Phenomenal. Wow. Thank you. Well, this is, this is so exciting that you're doing all this work and, and of course, playing Hamlet. That's, that's incredible. Talk about, you know, we talked about the, the dream types of roles for actors. That's, uh, that's probably the king on that. So that's great. Oh yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm equal parts terrified and, and, uh, excited. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> well, we're going to post the links and the info of all this stuff in the episode notes. And, um, if anybody has any questions for me about the podcast or anything, you can email craft business life podcast. That's all one word, craft business life podcast at gmail.com. So Thomas, thank you again so much. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back at some point for some updates. And uh, we're also going to uh, have group episodes where people that have been on the show uh, come on as a group to have more of an open group conversation and share experiences and stuff. So I'd love to have you on oh, cool. those. Uh, if you like, at some point, I'll let you know. And uh, anyway, that's about it. So thank you again so much. Great. Thank you very much, Lee. All right. Thanks, everybody. Till next time. Bye.